while now. No food, no water. <clears throat> Let's go back to Leviticus 23 and see if this is really necessary. If it's not, then we let's go fix lunch. Leviticus 23. Here he goes through the holy days that we are to keep, and we certainly find in the New Testament that these were being kept, since several references are made to them throughout the New Testament. But we begin with the Passover, <coughs> and... It is very important to the beginning of the plan of God, and we all realize by now that the holy days represent a story or a symbolism uh, of the entire plan of God for salvation for mankind, and that's why we rehearse them each year. And the first and primary issue that has to be dealt with is the sin of the world. So we have the Passover at the beginning of the Holy Day uh, Caesar cycle of the year, in which Christ was willing to die for us. And then we have a Holy Day that day, uh, because it is a very important day in the plan of God. Without Christ's sacrifice starting it all off, what would you have? So the first day represents Him and His sacrifice for us and bringing us delivering us from sin, uh, which happened on that Passover night uh, and day. Then they have six more days, the number of men, for us to continue our part of putting sin out of our lives, because we need a continual sacrifice since we continually sin. So he is there to wipe it all out, but then it continues. And we're going to find that the Day of Atonement has a very, very important uh, part of this, of getting rid of it for good. So, the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread picture putting sin out of our lives, first by He who is able to completely rid us of it, and then our part. Then comes Pentecost, kept in the New Testament, because that's the day that God gave His Spirit to give us the help to overcome sin and to be holy as God is holy. Now, also in the meaning of Pentecost, which we don't have time to go through all of it here, is the engagement of the bride to Christ. <clears throat> when he gives his spirit, uh, it is symbolism or symbolic of, of, uh, of engagement. Then we go through a long, hot summer, <laughs> when he is away, and he said he would be away, and that we were to be faithful until he returned. So we're to endure this long, hot summer of temptation, of trial, of, of our faith, until he returns, and then we have tremendous symbolism, of course, with the Feast of Trumpets, in which he changes us from mortal to immortal at the last trump, because he has to marry like kind, and he spirit cannot marry flesh. I'm sorry, but the demons didn't have sex with women before the flood and, and have uh, hybridized giants. Those giants were all human. Christ made it very clear uh, that the angels, the demons, do not marry, and sex is uh, banned outside of marriage, period. So they don't have sex. Anyway, we are changed so that we can be completely like Him, of like kind with Him, and therefore eligible to marry Him. So that puts us, having been engaged, having performed the faithfulness of our engagement, we are changed, transformed uh, into spirit. Then comes the Day of Atonement. Let's read that here in uh, Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 27, <coughs> and fill in the meaning of the Day of Atonement with the rest of the plan. Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a Day of Atonement. It shall be an holy convocation, a commanded assembly unto you. 
and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. I won't go to all the scriptures to prove that afflicting our souls doesn't mean sitting here sticking ourselves with a pen, but it means not eating and drinking during this time. We all know that. And certainly it ties in with Christ uh, and Satan and how Christ fasted 40 days before he was tempted of Satan. So uh, fasting is very, very important in the symbolism of this day. So it's a holy day and a day of atonement. Now, what does atonement mean? It comes from a Hebrew word, kephar. It means to cover, uh, particularly with bitumen. You cover up the flesh that shows, or you're covering a log with it. It's like tar, maybe. Uh, you, you cover something over, so that what was there cannot be seen, is, I think, the sense of it. But it also can mean to expiate or condone. So, uh, in one sense, it can expiate something, get rid of it, uh, speaking of our sins all the way through, of course. It can also mean to placate or cancel. So, Expiate is get rid of something, expiate it from us. Now, canceling it is has a little different meaning. Canceling it means getting rid of it completely as opposed to uh, making a payment for it, if you will. Expiation is making a payment for it so that you don't owe anymore. Okay? But canceling gets rid of it completely. So this mean, this word has more than one meaning and some shadings of meanings, which can be important when we get down to the uh, the symptoms here. I mean, the, uh, the the symbolism is what I'm trying to say. So you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the eternal your God. Now, no work means no work, no preparation of food, obviously, or any kind of work. Now, being that this does symbolize the marriage of the Lamb to His bride, the Day of Atonement, Deuteronomy 24.5 directs that He do no work for a year. And in Scripture, a day is as a year. So, the symbolism starts here by showing that we're to do no work of any kind, and he is not going to be doing work during his honeymoon. For it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the eternal, your God. We'll get into that a little more later on as to how this is carried out and what it ultimately means. So whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day or does not fast, he shall be cut off from among his people. Now, it doesn't say that in the other uh, places where it says gives instruction about the holy days. But here it says you'll be cut off from among God's people. What cuts us off from God? Isaiah 59.2 Sin separates us or cuts us away from God. So, any kind of work on this day, or any kind of food or drink that we might take in, cuts us off from God. It does not allow us to be a part of the honeymoon, the marriage and the honeymoon, nor uh, does it allow us to be God, or to be bride. Cut off means separated from taken away from, cut off. So this day has some very, very important symbolism, and we'll get into that more uh, in a little bit in another chapter uh, to show how, how critical this is. The words aren't coming to me today as readily as they usually do, so forgive my 
not being cut off from God, but being cut off from food and water. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's totally without food and water, sustenance of any kind. I know there was a lady in uh, in the Miami church, I remember, that she had a real problem. Well, I've, I've known quite a few people over the years who've uh, had problems with diabetes, or she would go into convulsions sometimes. Uh, they have a, or, or fasting was a very, very arduous thing for her. And... Uh, she says, well, is it okay if I eat a little bit to keep from having, uh, what did I just say? Convulsions. Uh, convulsions. <laughs> uh, or diabetics, can I go ahead and take my insulin because my body needs it on that day? Depends on how much you want to obey God. Depends on how much faith you have. Do you have faith in God that He can see you through the crisis? of health that you might have. What about on Thursday or Tuesday of last week? Uh, if you needed that, you took it. But here, God gives specific instruction. And all I, the only answer I could give was, you should obey God in every way. We're told to do that. Every one of His commands, we're to obey it. Now, I'm not going to tell you not to take your insulin, or whatever you take to keep from having convulsions. I'm not going to tell you not to do that, because I'll go to jail for dispensing medical advice. But I says, in terms of faith, God says, do this. Now, to obey Him, you have to do this. So that comes down to a matter of your faith. It's all about faith. Can God see me through this? Now, I had seen in that congregation there in Miami, people healed of some things that were pretty bad, and it wasn't on atonement or trumpets or Passover or any other time in particular, but they had been healed. I've seen many healings in my life from boyhood on where people would have died if God hadn't intervened at that particular instance. I've seen some of that around here where God has intervened or people would have died. Now, some have died, but then some... There were interventions and they didn't. So, do we have faith or do we not? And that's what it really all boils down to. Uh, we obey God and we trust Him to take care of us. I've never found a scripture yet that says, Obey God unless there are some circumstances that scare you. Where is that scripture? Can anyone quote it to me? No, he says, trust and obey every word of God. Uh, and so what if you died? What if you had a terrible convulsion on Day of Atonement and died? What does God say about the death of his saints? It's a sweet savor to him. So if He let you die on atonement, you died in the faith, trusting Him, doing what He said, you'll be in the kingdom of God. How can you go wrong? You might, have, you might be taking your medicine a week from next Thursday and have a convulsion and die anyway. So what's the diff? You obeyed God, He delivered you. He saved you. He protected you because of your faith. That's what the prayer of faith there in James 5 is all about. So when he says it here, he means it. Uh, if you take food, water, whatever, and that has to include medicines, that goes in. What does food do? Well, it's supposed to keep you alive. What does your medicine do? Well, it's alleged to supposedly keep you alive. What's the difference? It's a matter of faith is what it is a matter of. But I might die. Well, I might die Tuesday in a car wreck, too. God doesn't protect me in some cases, and I believe He has, and you too. And you times you would have died. So, when He gives instruction, we follow it in faith. And I never knew... I, of all those people that I ever advised on that over 50 years... I've not had one yet that died on that day. 
So, God can take care of us. So, this is an important thing. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. That's pretty grim, pretty severe. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at the evening, from even to even. So that tells you you start the day in the evening. It also tells you that you start it at the beginning of the tenth, because it says that this Day of Atonement is on the 10th, so you're beginning at the end of the night. And where that's important is at the Passover, where you have some doing at the end of the 14th, the beginning of the 15th. So you go back here and show them, no, it starts at the end of the previous day, the 13th, beginning of the 14th. End of the 9th, beginning of the 10th. So he explains it very clearly here in terms of atonement for those who would be confused about Passover. Okay, there's more instruction for this day. That lays it out of what our responsibility is. Let's go to Leviticus, um, to, uh, Leviticus 16 then. And uh, he showed there in 23 how important and how critical this day is and what the penalties are if you don't do it. And we're going to see more of that here in Leviticus 16. It, uh, it underscores it greatly. The Eternal spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. Uh, they were struck dead for not doing things the right way. When they offered before the Eternal and died. And the Eternal said to Moses, Speak to Aaron your brother. Uh, Aaron was the high priest, of course that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark. He can't come in there at all times or just any time. That he die not. Now, he was authorized, as we'll see, to go in there, but only once a year. And if he went in any other time, he would die. So this is a critical issue as well. Uh, better obey, uh, you know, Aaron might have thought, oh, I sinned greatly, or somebody sinned. I better go on in there, and maybe God will have mercy on me and not kill me. It's only July, but but maybe he won't. Uh, you want to take that bet? What about the guy that just reached out to touch it and steady it? That didn't work out too well for him uh, at all. Well, people say, well, I'm just trying to help God. How do you help God? God does not need any help. Even our salvation is His work. We just try to do what we're supposed to do, and He does the whole salvation thing. If you were born and you kept the law of God and never made a mistake throughout your whole life, and you were depending on yourself then for salvation, how are you going to change yourself? How are you going to get from physical to spirit? He does the whole thing. It's by His grace and mercy. It's not by our works. It's His grace and mercy. But we're created to do good works, to give us good favor in His eyes so that He's willing to give us the gift. So Uzzah died for trying to help God. All right. Uh, he's not to come in there, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron was still a sinner, and they still had animal sacrifice back then. So to do what he was to do on the Day of Atonement, and we'll see that this is definitely talking about that because it says it down here, in verse 29, in the seventh month, tenth day of the month, they'll afflict your souls. So, this is decidedly speaking of the day of atonement. So, he'll bring this offering, and he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. Uh, 
and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen mitre shall he be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. Now you'll notice that this was Aaron once a year that put on the holy garments. Thankfully, we don't all have to wear them every day. <laughs> There's a big religion that causes you to have to wear your your holy garments or your uh, angel chaps or whatever you want to call them every day. Not in the Bible, thankfully. It's awful hot around here. I don't think I need an extra layer of clothes. Anyway, he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So, he's been told to bring the animals and then put on the clothing. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. Now, his sins have separated him from God. So, he has to have those expiated. He has to have them canceled, if you will. So, what does that do? If the sin is gone, then the separation between you and God has been removed. Right? That's why Christ died for us, so that the separation between us and God could be removed, so that we could be one at one mint. Uh, is more of an English way of looking at it, where you become at one with, meaning you're not separated from anymore, but you're close together. Just as a husband and wife are joined at marriage and become one, and Christ will with his bride to become one with her, once she is elevated to the proper status. So, he has to be close to God, because he's going to go inside the veil and be directly with God. And he can't have any sin there, because that would still create a certain amount of separation. So that has to be gone completely. Can't be there anymore. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So he offers sin for himself so that he can actually approach God. And isn't that what we have to do in the New Testament? We have to go through Christ, who died for us, whose blood washed away our sins, and He is the only way we can go to the Father, is through Him. We don't pray to Him. There's nothing in there that tells us to. We pray to the Father. That's what He told us to do. But we address the Father in His name, by His authority, through His having cleansed us because we have a continual sacrifice. And when I address the Father in heaven, I am using Christ's sacrifice as Aaron did the bullock here to cleanse me so I'm not separated, so that I can be one with God in conversation during that prayer. And then I close it in Christ's name because it's by His authority and His authority only that I can go there, because otherwise I would be separated and I couldn't approach God. Until that veil of the temple was rent in twain, we could not approach the Father. You could only talk to Melchizedek at that time, not the Father. Now we can go to the Father through Melchizedek, who became Christ the Offering. Now, there is nothing that says we address Christ in prayer. He told us to pray the Father. But I think acknowledging that He is there and it's through Him that we can approach the Father, that we, in our mind's eye, we recognize that they are together and that we are only there because of Christ. So I don't pray, dear Jesus, I pray my Father in heaven. With dear Jesus there with him, if you will. I, I had somebody say, well, I know in there somewhere it says to pray to Jesus. I said, find it. Show me. Never did. It's not in there. 
Okay, so then he has these two goats uh, and present them before the eternal. So these two goats are presented to God, to Christ at this point, and uh, they, well, they represent something that happens prior to the Father coming here. So, so there's some things that have to be settled before the Father even comes to the earth. And this is part of it. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the eternal and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, notice the wording here, because there's been some confusion among the Protestants about this particular passage. Some of them think that <clears throat> the one goat represents Christ and the other goat represents Christ. But both goats represent Christ. Uh, now, is that what it says? Let's go through, and we're going to see some very, very important symbolism, as well as just the wording throughout this whole thing. You cast lots. What do you do when you cast lots? When they cast lots over who would be the twelfth uh, apostle after Judas was gone, one was in, one was out. They weren't both in, they weren't both out. You cast lots to make a division or a separation or a decision between that which is acceptable and that which is unacceptable. Or in the case of the two apostles, I would say one more acceptable than the other less acceptable because they were both uh, decent candidates for the job. But here... One is for the Lord. Just one. Not two. Doesn't say both. One is for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. So if one is for the Lord, then the scapegoat must be for something else. Not for the Lord, because it's only one for Him. Now what does scapegoat mean? It comes from the Hebrew word azazel. And... Uh, it means departure or leave, or from its root means to go away or disappear. And we'll see that that's what happens to this goat. Uh, one lexicon says that Azazel means one who went himself, one who left. Uh, I don't know how valid that is, but... Uh, departure or leave, and from the root word, go away or disappear, are valid according to Strong's. So one is for the Lord. If you're for the Lord and you're dedicated to the Lord, where do you stay? With the Lord. You don't go away from Him. Uh, Jude 6 and Jude 13 say that when we are resurrected, and we join Him, we will ever be with Him. We will never leave Him again. We will always be with Him. So the one that's for the Lord stays with the Lord. The other departs. One's for the Lord, the other is for the departure. Or the other is for the leaving. Or the other is to go away. Or the other is to disappear. So whatever, it, the one that's for the scapegoat is going to go away. Okay? That's what the word means. Do you know of any symbolism anywhere in the Bible where Christ is to go away? Or to be sent away? Or to be taken away? You can't find one. It's not there. Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. Now, how do you offer a goat for a sin offering? You kill it. The wages of sin is death. So this goat is offered, its life is taken as a sin offering. We'll see that here in a little bit more clearly. So he's offered, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the Azazel, or let's call it the departure. 
the the go away goat, the G A G, the go away goat. The lot on which the lot fell to be the go away goat shall be presented alive before the eternal. Now he's not for the eternal; he's presented alive to the eternal or uh, before him. What do you mean before him? Does it mean in terms of yesterday was the day before today? No, because this goat was not there before the eternal. What do you do when you have committed an infraction in this world's laws? You go before the judge. The, the, the before there indicates judgment. It indicates you go before him to have something pronounced, to have something decided. Now, the one is for him, and it died to remove sin, to cancel sin. That's what the word can mean. This one is presented to him alive. Now, Christ died for our sins, right? Now, let's introduce who this could possibly be talking about. Let's say Satan. He can't die. When he was created as an angel, he was given eternal life or life everlasting. Now, God cannot take that away from him because he conferred it on him. And a gift which God gives, God will not take away. We have a term we call Indian givers. I don't mean to be racist, it's just a term. But somebody who gives a gift and then decides, oh, I want that back. It has strings attached to it. I'll give it to you, but I want to know which day you're going to wear it, and I want to be sure you don't take it back to Macy's or whatever. Uh, there's strings there. Or you'll forever hear about it may be the only string that's attached. Oh, have you been wearing that thing I gave you? You know? It's a control issue. We're not to let our left hand and our right hand know what the other is doing. So, Satan can't die. Christ could. Now, how comes Christ, who had eternal life, can die, and Satan can't? And we'll see that he can't. At least that seems to be the implication. Well, Satan is selfish and stubborn to the core. And though he would be better off dead, he doesn't want to die. So that which God gave him, he will not voluntarily give up so that he can die. Now, Christ had eternal life as well. had lived throughout eternity. He gave that up voluntarily because he loved you and me. He gave it up. He became human, and he died. <clears throat> and he did not exist anywhere in the universe during that three days. He was dead. Wasn't part spirit still alone down at his body? He was dead. He knew nothing until he was resurrected. So he gave it up. Well, I'm not going to give it up for any reason. Christ loved you enough that he gave up eternity for you and me. Not our sins only, Paul says, but for the whole world. Not just for Israel, but for the whole world. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten Son. So there's an awful lot of love there, and Satan has none of it. Okay, this one is sent there before the king for judgment to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a go-away or a departure into the wilderness. <clears throat> now, an atonement was made here. True. But what kind of an atonement was it? It was a deal made because the other goat died that sin would be removed. Is removed. What remains? If the sin is gone, Christ's sacrifice, our sins are gone. 
They no longer exist. They're gone. So what remains to be judged? He killed the sin goat first. The sin went away. What is left? The guilt. What caused the sin? What would cause more sin? Whatever caused that sin needs to go away. Now, we have always sinned, and Christ forgives our sins right up until the Feast of Trumpets in symbolism, and then our sin goes away, doesn't it? And we will never sin again, will we? Because it goes away for good. But now there's still a problem because only the 144 sin have had, uh, the 144,000 first fruits have had their sin go completely away and they will never sin again. But now you have a lot of people that come out of the seven last plagues <coughs> into the millennium who are still subject to sin, right? They're still human. Now, what is God going to do? How is He going to fix that problem? Well, the first thing He's going to do is remove the cause, the main cause for sin. Revelation 20. He's going to bind Satan, send him away into the wilderness where he can cause no one to sin. He's going to depart. He's going to go away not be around for a thousand years. That's what's done with this go-away goat. He's sent into the wilderness where he will not be around anyone. Can't cause it. Did Adam and Eve sin? Yes, they sinned. What caused their sin? Who caused their sin? They were going along not sinning. Their human nature had not even been unwrapped, if you will. They didn't know the difference between good and evil. All they knew was good. Everything was great. So, they would not have sinned under those circumstances without a goad or a goat same word with a D or a D, to cause them to sin. So he tempted them, gave them something that opened their eyes to sin, and in so doing, they had sinned. So they sinned, yes, but who has the guilt for their sin? Satan. Now, God tells us in James 1.13 that he does not tempt man with sin. Who is? Who's the tempter? Who's the deceiver? Who's the liar? Satan the devil. He is at the root of the very beginnings of man's sin, and he's been present throughout ever since, causing people to sin. Now, <clears throat> the sin is gone or canceled by the first goat that is offered first, and it no longer exists. But in the plan of salvation, which the Day of Atonement is part of, on past trumpets and atonement, there are still humans, so God removes Satan from them, sends him away, a departure, so that he cannot tempt them with sin during that thousand years. So he's the cause of sin, and the guilt of sin is there on him. But he can't die. He does not sacrifice himself for us, does he? No. He just goes out in the wilderness by himself. You cannot find in Scripture anywhere in symbolism, and symbolism is what this is all about, how does it affect, what does it mean for the New Testament and for us as Christians? That's what symbolism is. So this symbolize, this was done back then symbolizing something that would come in the future. 
in the plan of salvation. And you never see Christ taken away from the plan of salvation. You never see Him taken out of the picture. You never even see Him alone. He wasn't alone when He was three days days in the grave. He was dead. He knew nothing. So aloneness or loneliness or being alone meant nothing. No, He is always with His people. We just read that in Romans 8, 32 or 38, wherever it is. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. So, He is always there. He loves us so much. He is always with us. Cannot be separated from us. We can only separate ourselves from Him. That's why on the Day of Atonement, we don't work at all, and we don't eat or drink at all, so that we are not separated from Him. Whatever separation has caused because of our sin through the year is atoned for, canceled, expiated by the blood of Christ. Doesn't count anymore. Now let's go on here. Oh. You let him go into the wilderness, and Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. We have to go to God and ask for forgiveness of our own sins, confess and forsake them. Just as he sacrificed that for his sin, we ask for Christ's sacrifice over our sin. And the Day of Atonement's a real good time to do that. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the eternal before the eternal, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it in the veil. So before he goes in, he offers a sacrifice so that he's clean and has sweet incense to go before God. Just as we're resurrected and we go into the wedding ceremony, it's a sweet incense to the Son and to the Father, because our sin is completely gone, we will never sin again, so it is a complete joining together that will never be separated. So he had to symbolically go through that before he could go through the veil into the uh, holy place. And then he takes the blood of the bullock and sprinkles it with his finger uh, to the mercy seat eastward, and he does this seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil. So this is obviously speaking of Christ. That veil was rent in twain, giving access when Christ died. Or actually when he was resurrected, I guess it was. Uh, No, there was the earthquake when he died. Yeah, that was right. So, I... He does this for the people and the blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So Aaron did a sacrifice and asked for forgiveness of his sin as we do. But then that goat was offered for all men's sin forever for the whole world as Paul said. And even our sin cannot be canceled without the blood of Christ. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So this goat (coughs) and its blood represents the uncleanness of Israel and their transgressions in all their sins. This one goat represents all their sins. Now, when all their sins are are forgiven in the blood of this goat inside the veil on the mercy seat, how many sins are there left to account for? None. Zero. They're all gone. All their sins is under the blood of this one goat. Does that leave any for another goat to have their sins placed on? No. They all went on this one. All of them. 
And it's the only one that went in the veil before God. The other one didn't. Let's read on and see that. For all their sins, and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So all their uncleanness is wiped out by this one goat. does not remain. And it's before the mercy seat. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. So all sin and the whole congregation, all the people, come under the blood of that one goat. Could there be any question on that? What did Christ say when he came out of the tomb? Don't touch me yet until I go to the Father to be approved as the sacrifice for the whole world's sin. Here, the instruction was, don't anybody come around until this is done, until Aaron comes out. Don't touch. <laughs> Virtually the same thing that Christ said about himself. So this is clearly speaking of Christ and all sin and for everybody. Verse 18, And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the eternal and make an atonement for it, and shall take the blood of the bullock and the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. <clears throat> so that was to sanctify the altar. Uh, we go and kneel before the altar. That term is still used in the New Testament uh, when uh, he tells the two witnesses in Revelation 11 uh, to go to the altar and then the worship there uh, and leave out the court of the Gentiles, at least temporarily, until it was time, but to deal with the church first. So Christ does the same. He deals with the church and its sins first. Come feast of trumpets, they're all gone. And come day of atonement, no more sin from any of us. But there are still humans who can so that has to be dealt with, as I said. Anyway, he'll go out before that altar and sprinkle it there and sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Why seven times? God purified his word seven times, it says in the Psalms. So when he purifies sin, it's not just once. It's like the counter over here. I might take something and swipe it off once, but I don't get it all. If I swipe it again, I get it more of it. And being a man, seven might not be enough, but a lady could get it by seven swipes, I think, pretty well clean. I'm, I'm kidding, because I always got kid, kidded about uh, how I just spread, spread the dirt evenly. No, we, we don't want to spread the dirt evenly. We don't want the sin spread evenly. We want it completely gone. So seven times he sprinkles it. It's symbolism, but it means let's make this a clean wash. And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place and the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar... He shall bring the live goat. Now, everything that has been done to sanctify, to purify, to wash the sins of the whole congregation has been done to this point. Everything's holy. No sin remains. All gone is the symbolism. And the second goat has been standing over here chewing its cud through all of this. It had nothing to do with sin or cleansing of the people or the altar or anything else. It was standing over here chewing its cud. So when this is all done, we've already talked about Christ and all that he did to this point. And he's the only, his is the only blood that can cleanse. And without blood, nothing can be forgiven. So this goat clearly represents Christ because you can't be clean without Him. 
So after all the cleaning is done, then uh, he shall bring the live goat. Okay, must be a different purpose. The one was for the eternal, right? The other was for the departure. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. He doesn't lay the knife to its throat. He lays both his hands on it. Now, when you put your hands on someone like that, you confer something, right? When Abraham or Isaac or Jacob laid their hands on their son, they conferred something. Now, in those cases, it was good. But the symbolism of laying your hands there, whether it's ordination or the Holy Spirit after baptism or whatever, you confer something on that head. So that's what he did. He laid both hands on the head of the live goat and confessed over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting the pop on the head of the goat. And she shall send him away by the hand of someone qualified to do it into the wilderness. All right, let's break that down. He lays both hands on him to confer something. What is there to confer? We just read that all the sin is gone. All the separation from God is gone. We have been able to enter into the veil to the Father. All that is to be done about sin is done. It doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's been forgiven. It's been canceled. So it, sin doesn't exist anymore. Right? Isn't that what that said? It's all gone? So what's left? The sin's gone. There's nothing left but the guilt of what caused the sin. Now, God wants to get rid now of that which causes sin. Remember, He had a whole universe that was full of peace and security and happiness and joy until sin entered the universe. And it screwed everything up. And he doesn't like that. And that has to be gotten rid of. But he can't kill the one who caused the sin because of his own ethics. And the one who caused the sin will not give up eternity so that he can die and be removed, and not cause sin. Now, Satan, since his first rebellion, has never ceased to cause sin. He caused it among the angels in the universe. And as soon as man was created and put on the earth, then he caused sin in the world. So that covers it all. The universe and the world. Now, Christ can't die for Satan. He could die for us. But he can't die for Satan. Satan will have, he will not offer his sacrifice for Satan. Because Satan hasn't repented. And if Satan doesn't repent, then what good would it do to offer yourself for his past sins if he's going to keep doing it? And if he keeps doing it, then there will be continued guilt. He's the one guilty of causing sin in the universe and in the world. And since he can't be killed, he's going to be sent away. Depart. The go-away goat. No more guilt. You're not going to be around during the millennium to cause people to sin. So we're sending you away. Revelation 20. Christ is never sent away. He is always front and center to what is going on in the plan of God. Front and center in giving himself to die for our sins. Front and center in helping us out of them and continuing to forgive them. Satan is always front and center in causing us to sin and accusing us of sin before the Father's throne. 
How many beings is Christ? Just one. He's one being. He's the Son of God. He's our elder brother. He's our husband-to-be. He is one. So why have two goats to represent one individual? Whatever happens to that one goat is in its fullness of symbolism only to do with that one individual. <coughs> I am not two people. Well, I'm beginning to be big enough to be, but I'm actually just one person, despite all that. So, if you were to represent me on a stage somewhere, do you need two characters for me? No. Just just me. You only need one to represent Christ. Because that one represents everything that was done for our sins. And after he shed his blood, they were all gone. They didn't exist anymore. There was no more sin to confer on another goat. Now that would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? For Christ to have one goat represent him and remove sin, but this goat only got rid of 40% of it, so you need another goat to handle the other 60% of it or whatever. No. One individual, one sacrifice, one God and Lord and King of Kings. Just one. Now this other one wasn't killed, so he couldn't... He, he couldn't be representing our sin because it's all gone through Christ. None left. The only thing left is the guilt. So he puts his hands on him and confers that guilt on him and then sends him away. He holds him accountable for the sins. He puts them on his head. Doesn't the Bible speak in other places about how the blood will be upon your head? Yeah, in Ezekiel. And other, maybe other places. The blood is on your head. So the guilt for our sins and for that which Christ forgave is on the one who caused them. From the Garden of Eden on. Well, back from when he first rebelled against God and on. So, that's what's confessed over him. The sin's gone. The only thing left is who caused it. Now, let's get rid of him so he doesn't cause it anymore. You can't cause anybody to sin if you're out in the wilderness by yourself. You can't influence anybody. Now, Christ will always be around to influence us, right? I certainly hope so. Always. Never can be separated from his love. So he's never sent into the wilderness away from us where he can't affect us. No, he's always there for us. A continual uh, relationship. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let the goat go in the wilderness. Now Christ was never sent into an area not inhabited. In any of the rest of the Bible, you can't find that. He is always there for us. Always. And even as he lay dead, he was there for us. That sacrifice was for us. So, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 again. We will ever be with him. He's not going to be off in the wilderness. That's Satan. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and put off the linen garments when he put on, uh, which he put on, and so on, and wash his flesh and be done with it. So one goat represented our sins, which are completely washed away. The other represented the guilt and the one who caused them. And he is sent off into solitary confinement, so he can't do that anymore. And that's the symbolism of the New Testament all the way through. Uh, then he finishes up the thing by cleaning and burning uh, what's left and so on. And this is to be done in the tenth day of the seventh month. Verse 30, For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins. Now, it doesn't mention the second goat here, does it? 
It just mentions the one. The one who claimed us. The other one's been sent into the wilderness. Not a factor anymore. Not mentioned again. Christ is the one who made us clean from all our sins. Satan is the one who caused them to be there in the first place. Let's go back to Revelation 20 just for a moment and, and see that this is the way that it is. It symbolized something that is brought out right here in Revelation 20. I'll hurry through this. We're getting close to time, and it is the day when we don't stay awake as well. Uh, now, in chapter 12 and verse 9, we have seen that Satan is continually going before the Father's throne to accuse us, right? In verse 9, uh, he's cast down. That great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So he gets cast out of heaven, which is where his first influence was. He's cast to the earth. Now he still comes after those whom Christ has forgiven. Down at the end of the chapter, the dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. So casting him out of heaven didn't finish the job. He just went after everybody that was down here. He just couldn't go accuse us anymore. Now we come to Revelation 20 and the next chapter of the story. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. What do you do with chains? You bind things up. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, a spiritual wilderness. There's no one there. Shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. So the point here is to take him away, to cause him to depart, to get him to the point he cannot influence anybody for a thousand years. The Azazel, the go-away goat, was sent into the wilderness away from everyone. Exact same symbolism here. Didn't die, didn't cover any sin, just had the guilt put on him, and he was stopped from causing guilt, deception, temptation anymore. And we have a class of people in the millennium who certainly need to have him gone so that they can obey God without interference from Satan. So that's what God says he does. The rest of the dead live not again till the thousand years were finished. But he's well up here again in verse 3 at the, the last phrase. And after that he must be loosed a little season. So he will not be allowed to influence people for a thousand years. And at the end of that time he's loosed for a very short season to attack God's people. It says that down here. Uh, the rest of the dead live not till the thousand years were finished. And when the thousand years are expired, verse 7, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and go to deceive the nations, to influence again. As long as he's around, there's deception. Can't get away from it in any age. And they went up and encompassed the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, and God brought fire down from heaven and devoured the physical people that he had deceived to think that they could take over the throne of God. He still tried to do the same thing he did back aeons ago. Take over the throne of God. Tried to take over from Christ. Tried to destroy us. Then he makes one last hurrah. Deceives people at the end of the millennium. Does the same thing to them as he's always done and causes them to go attack God. Now, there's a, there's a real whippy idea. <laughs> They're all destroyed by fire. And then the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet were and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
He is never allowed again to be around any other being in the universe. Solitary, fiery confinement. Now, he's spirit, so fire doesn't bother him. But the symbolism of fire destroys us, and the lake of fire will destroy us. It isn't the fire that hurts Satan. It's being in solitary confinement where he can't cause any more trouble or damage or guilt of sin and deception. <coughs> Beasts and false prophets were human. They burn up, but not him. Then comes the great white throne judgment, and the dead, small and great, from Adam down until that time, come to physical life to be judged, but Satan will be gone again. So he's the go-away goat. He's the one that was sent into the wilderness by Aaron. He's the one that is cast out of heaven where he had influence. Then he's cast out of the earth where he had influence. And his influence ends then there is no more sin. Once the plan is complete, there is no more sin, no one to cause it. So both those goats back there were very, very important. One representing the sin that had been caused and getting rid of it. One who caused the sin being gotten rid of so sin cannot come back anymore. Then we have what? No more separation from God because sin is finished and done, and we can be completely close at one with Christ and the Father forevermore. Marriage is a very close relationship, and atonement represents that. And that which separates us from sin, I mean from God, sin, is removed, symbolic of Satan being removed, and literally removed so that he cannot cause sin in the universe ever again. So there can be complete closeness with God and His family forevermore without any being there to ever cause sin and separation. So that's what atonement is about. Getting rid of the sin and getting rid of the cause of sin. And once the cause is gone, sin will never happen again and there will be perfect peace and safety forevermore. We will ever be with the eternal and we will never be with Satan.